Um, we are going to continue in the book of Daniel today, uh, so please keep your Bibles at Daniel 9, 1 through 19. This massive text is our text, or will be our text for this morning. We have been, just a brief catch-up, if you will, we've been uh, looking at Daniel's visions over the course of many weeks. He received four visions during the Babylonian exile. The first vision came during the first year of King Belshazzar, the last Babylonian king. Um, it featured four great beasts, which represent four great empires. His second vision came during the third year of Belshazzar, and it features a ram and a goat, uh, which represent Medo-Persia and Macedon, or Greece, two of those great empires, if you will. This morning, we're going to begin to examine his third vision, which is here in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is all about his third vision, the third vision he received, and it has to do with what you see on the screen, 77 is a number, a number that represents um, some things. And uh, so that's where we're going today. Actually, we probably won't even get to the 77s. Obviously, we won't until next week because that's verses 20 through 27. Uh, but the first part, we're going to look at his actual prayer. What Bruce just read is Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. So we're going to look at his prayer. We're going to analyze. We're going to study it break it down, and I think that it would uh, makes total sense that I pray before we look at His prayer, right? Father in heaven, we humbly acknowledge Your presence, and we ask, oh dear Lord, You are truly awesome, You are great, we've been singing about Your greatness, and we now come before You and ask that You be merciful to us, that if You are to open our eyes, minds, hearts, to your truth that is here in this text, or any truth anywhere in the Bible, if you do that, it would be an act of your divine mercy. We humbly acknowledge that you owe us absolutely nothing, but we beseech you for your mercy in understanding this text, in understanding all of the Bible, that we might be shaped by these truths through the power of the Holy Spirit and become a little bit more like Jesus even Today, that is the goal of our salvation, according to Ephesians, to shape us and change us and transform us to be like your Son, who is our Lord and Savior. So speak to us today about mercy. Help us to get our minds and arms around it and uh, convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted. Sanctify us in those areas that we need sanctification Grow us in the areas that we need growth. Make us a little bit more like Christ. We thank you uh, for this time and opportunity to learn from your word and from you. You are our teacher. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've taken the 19 verses and, and divided it into two sections. Uh, and I think uh, we'll begin with section 1. Section 1, which, which I call Daniel Searches the Scriptures. Daniel Searches the Scriptures. We see that in verses 1 and 2. I'll just read it, and we'll just kind of move through the text as, as we usually do. In the first year of Darius, the son of... And how do you even pronounce this name? What, how did you do it, Bruce? I like that. I'm going with that because I had it all messed up. Ahasuerus. And of course, if you went and found on YouTube a you know, a pronunciation of it would probably be nothing like what Bruce just said. A hazardous, okay, a hazardous. It sounds hazardous, but it's a hazardous. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I like that, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's Babylonia. In the first year of his reign, in the first year of this king, Darius, I, Daniel, perceived, I love this, perceived in the books, he's speaking of Scripture, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So, we look at the context here. We need to immerse ourselves in what's actually playing out in the background, why this was written, what's going on during this time. King Belshazzar, that last Babylonian king, has been... Killed and Babylonia, which was 
certainly probably the greatest world empire of its day and up to that point, uh, has fallen to the Medes and the Persians or what we call the Medo-Persians. So Belshazzar is gone, Babylonia has fallen, Medo-Persia is now in power, has taken over that realm and it owns its own realm that it had prior to that, but now it's taken over this entire realm of Babylonia. And there is a new king sitting on the throne in Babylon City, which was kind of the headquarters, and his name is Darius. The text says Darius was a Mede, that is his ethnic background, and he was made king over Babylonia, the realm of the Chaldeans, by whom? It doesn't say in the text, but if we look at history and there's some clues in Scripture, uh, we gain that, that he was made king by the greater king over that empire, which was Cyrus the great king of Persia. Now, we did look at King Darius uh, in chapter 6. So we, we've already studied him and looked at him in a sense. And, and so what Daniel's doing is he's talking about the vision that he got back then. So we've already looked at him a bit. Uh, he was the, uh, the, the king that attempted to execute Daniel by tossing him to the lions, but God intervened. So you remember the narrative. If you've ever read chapter 6, you know what I'm talking about. So it was during Darius's first year in office that Daniel received this third vision. Daniel recognized that the first part of his vision in chapter 8 had actually come to pass. You remember the vision of the ram and the, and the goat and the horns and all of that. So Daniel realizes as he's watching Babylon disappear and Medo-Persia rise to power and the thrones exchange and all that, he's realizing that, man, this vision that I got a few years back... Part of it has come to pass before my very eyes. The ram, which in chapter 8 represents Medo-Persia, had, as the text says back in 8, charged westward, charged northward, charged southward, and no other beast. Uh, what beast is in reference here? The Babylonians was able to stand before him, Daniel 8, 4. So how incredible it must have been for Daniel to not only receive a prophetic vision, but to actually see some of it come to pass. Pretty awesome. So here he realizes, wow, what God gave me here back during uh, the third year of, of, of the reign of Belshazzar has actually come to pass. The first portion of it has happened. That ram has come and conquered. Babylon is no more. He realizes these things immediately. The fulfillment of this part of his vision prompted him to search the scriptures for information concerning the end of the desolations, namely the Babylonian captivity. So when this exchange of power happens, Daniel realizes that part of this vision has come to pass and he begins to go to scripture to look for information concerning the end of the desolations, aka the Babylonian captivity. Daniel spent time not just in the books or the Word of God in various places, but he spent quite a bit of time in Jeremiah, analyzing Jeremiah's prophecy, which said that this desolation, the Babylonian captivity, would last 70 years, start to finish, Jeremiah 25, 11. And you must also factor in how long Daniel has been in exile and, and realize that he was among the first group to be exiled. So technically, the exile began with him. And then you have this exchange of power. All of these things are coming to mind. He goes to the Word of God, and he's looking for additional insight, information. And just guess how long Daniel had been in exile up to this point. 66 years. He's thinking, we got four more years. It's probably what's going through his mind. He wants to know how these things work and when this desolation will end or how that will come to pass. He's curious. He's studying the Word. He's studying Jeremiah. But Daniel wasn't pondering just the 70-year exile desolation. He was also pondering all of Israel's desolations. In his mind, and, and it's, it's, it's implied in his prayer, and mostly you see it in, the, um, in God's response to his prayer, that he was considering and pondering the end of all of Israel's desolations, not just the 70 years, but, but more or less when will all of them end and when will 
Israel be reestablished once and for all and, and experience everlasting peace. These things are in his mind as well. The visions he had received up to this point showed that the Jews would experience more desolations, desolations beyond that of the 70-year captivity through enemies such as who? Emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, if you want to call him Emperor, Emperor Antichrist. These are great persecutors of the church that create great des- or of the church, but also of, of, um, of the Jews, I should say, of the nation of Israel. And, and they are in and of themselves, desolations that the Jewish people, the saints, as in reference in chapter 8, will experience and go through. So Daniel's concerned about when is the 70 years going to end? He's concerned about when will all of these desolations come to an end? He has been given insight into the future desolations. He wants to know. He wants to know when the Jews, as I said, would be free of all of their desolations and brought into a time of peace, and he searched the scriptures for answers, but that's not all that he did. That's not all he did. So let's look at section two. So the first section has to do with Daniel seeing events unfold. He goes to the scripture looking for information, basically. He's in the scriptures, he's looking for information, but then he goes beyond that. And number two, he seeks understanding through prayer, verses three through 19. And just think about that for yourself in a practical way. You, you need answers to something. You should go to the Word of God. And you should also go to the throne of God in prayer. And, and, and generally speaking, when we need answers and we have questions and we're concerned about this or that, isn't it true that the last thing that we do is go to the Word of God and then go to prayer? Usually we go to Maury Povich or, uh, heaven forbid, uh, what's her name? I can't think of her. Oprah. Or, uh, or, or maybe the, the friend at work, or, uh, you know, usually God is, is the last one whom we seek in, in, in His Word and, and in prayer. And, and we see through Daniel's example that the Word of God should be the first place that we go, and, and, and God's throne of grace is the second place, maybe, that we should go to in prayer. Or if you have a hard time understanding Scripture, you're reading a passage, and I tell you I wrestle with this all the time. How often do we actually pray for understanding? This is what Daniel's doing. Do we do that? Do we do that? Or do we ask a friend, and the next thing you know, he's unpacking some crazy theology for us. That's not even biblical. So Daniel did it right, and we should follow his example. He seeks, at this point, he seeks understanding through prayer, 3 through 19. And I'll tell you what, his prayer is truly amazing. Uh, it reminds me of, of Psalm 51, uh, David's, King David's great prayer after he uh, realizes and repents of his sin with Bathsheba and that whole terrible experience. And he writes Psalm 51 as a prayer of confession to the Lord. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. There are songs that are written after some of the verses. And it reminds me of that. It's just this great confession and plea for mercy. And Daniel's prayer has three components. Uh, it can serve as a model for prayer for us. It has really the three essential components that every prayer that we offer should have. Now, this is not to say that what Jesus told us to do and how to pray is wrong. Jesus, I think, affirmed these things in a sense. Uh, we can pray the Lord's Prayer. We can pray like that in that kind of order with those components. Uh, but really, our prayers should be characterized by these three things that we see here in Daniel's prayer, adoration, confession, and petition. Adoration, confession, and petition. His prayer has all of those components. Let's look at adoration first, verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And some of you are wondering, are those clothes? What, what is sackcloth and ashes? What is he doing? Well, what we're seeing here is that before he even prayed, he got himself into the right position for prayer. So he positions himself, okay? This is the posture of prayer, if you want to put it that way. Daniel put on sackcloth and ashes, which are two things that, that represent or symbolize his grief his brokenness over his sin, over the sin 
sins of his people, the Jews, the Judeans, the Israelites. So he postures or positions himself in humility and puts on things that represent his brokenness. He's not coming frivolously before the throne of God. He's taking a position and posture of humility. He understands some things that we all need to understand that that we'll discover as we move through it. So we see the position or posture of his prayer, sackcloth and ashes. He's grief-stricken. He's broken over the sin of his self and his people. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying... So here's where the prayer begins. I'd say uh, maybe 4B. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Daniel began by declaring who God is. He calls Him the great and awesome God. This is adoration. Daniel is adoring God. He is He is reflecting upon who He is and even verbalizing who God is. And He calls God great and awesome. He understands that God is great and awesome. This isn't a shallow offering of praise. He he gets it. And this is how we should begin our prayers, right? We begin with adoration. God, You are wonderful. You are incredible. You are awesome. How do we usually start our prayers? God, I have this problem. I have that problem. She has this problem. I pray that you deal with her before I do. Lord, help me. We always come with petition. We get the order wrong. I wonder if that it, it's because we don't have the biblical order for our prayers that so often our prayers seem to bounce around in the room and don't seem to get to where they need to get to. I think God loves it when we pray, no matter what. He loves it when His children speak to Him. But there is, or can be at least, an order. And I believe that it should begin with adoration. I have to say I'm the first offender. I usually just go with all the needs. And I don't begin with praises and adoration. The great and awesome God. You could spend a thousand lifetimes preaching and unpacking the greatness and the awesomeness of God. We could stop there and stay there for an eternity, and we will at some point, we'll be in eternity. These things will be fleshing out before us. He is truly great. He is truly awesome. As I say, pizza is wonderful. It is not awesome. That word should be designated for God alone because He is truly awesome, awe-inspiring. We become awestruck when we enter His presence and when we ponder His greatness, His vast greatness. Adoration. God is also one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with His covenant people. And they are described as those who love Him and keep His commandments. If we are in covenant relationship with God through, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, then we are covenant people, and we are going to act and behave like covenant people. And how do we do that? We love Him, and we keep His commandments. We keep His commandments. We, we follow His rules. We obey His laws. We love and honor and uphold His precepts. We live the way that He wants us to live. It was actually Moses who revealed the principle on which God would deal with His covenant people, Obedience would bring blessing, and disobedience would bring discipline. Even a covenant people cannot be blessed if they disobey. See, this is one of the problems with the free grace movement today, that, you know, we can just do whatever we want. We're under grace, and we can just do whatever we want, and it's irrelevant, and it's wrong. But what we don't understand, and what many don't understand, is that God is a God of covenant, and within His covenant with people... There is a requirement and command to obey. Translation, don't just do whatever you want. We don't have grace so that sin may abound. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, heaven forbid, exclamation point. So so we go around thinking that since we're under grace, we can pretty much do whatever we want and God's just going to continue to bless us. And I'm not saying that He doesn't in some ways. Are you still breathing? Yes. There's a providential blessing. But we need to get out of this mindset of thinking that because of grace, I can pretty much do whatever I want, God's just going to continue to bless me. Within, 
within the parameters of his covenant that he has with his people, there is an explicit command to obey. And when we obey, blessings come. And when we disobey, blessings do not come. We need to understand this. So important and so vital that we do and not fall into the trap of just doing whatever on earth we want to do whenever we want to do it. Even a covenant people cannot be blessed if they disobey. God is still, here's the thing, the Israelites, the Judeans are in exile for 70 years. They're under God's discipline. But He still loves them. They're still His covenant people. Do they have the blessedness and blessing of Jerusalem, their home? No, they've been removed from those blessings. So it's essential that we understand that when we obey, we will be blessed. When we disobey, we will not be blessed. Will we be killed? Ananias and Sapphira were. So why why put the Lord to the test? Why put Him to the test? Why act like your child 10 years ago when they come out of the room, get your butt back in there? Why would we do that to the Lord? We just need to obey as best we can and and struggle through that and do that and understand that His blessings come to those within covenant that that obey. One form of discipline uh, was that Israel would be subjugated, according to Moses, would be subjugated to Gentile powers. Okay, so if you're my covenant, you're totally my covenant people, and if you disobey me, one form of discipline, discipline, according to what Moses wrote down, is that you will be subjugated to You will be given over to Gentile powers. You will be ruled and governed and controlled by people who do not love me. I'll tell you something, that's going to be difficult, isn't it? You love God, maybe you slip up, whatever. Maybe you're drug out in exile like Daniel was. He was a pretty good guy, and all of a sudden he finds himself being subjected to Gentile powers because of the nation. Um, Just if, if you have a... Maybe that's not a great example. I was going to say be... Just yoke yourself in marriage to an unbeliever you'll kind of sense and come to realize what that's like, where you have this worldview and that person has that worldview and this person doesn't care or give a lick about the things of God and you do and there's constant tension, constant strife, constant disagreement. They would be yoked to and under the thumb of non-Jews people who don't give a lick about Moses' law, and quite frankly, Israelites at this point weren't either. Israel's experience in Babylon was the outworking of this principal truth. You'll be subjugated to Gentile powers. They disobeyed. They continued to do that habitually. They turned their back on God. They find themselves making the 500-mile journey to Babylon, and they stay there for 70 years. It happens. So that's the first part. That's adoration. B, confession. This is the longer section, verses 5 through 14. Verse 5, we have sinned. Here's where he begins to, to really lay it out. He's already said, God, you're great. You're, you know, you're totally awesome. You're amazing. You're the covenant keeper. We're really not. And here's where he begins to show how Israel, the Israel is not covenant keeping like their God. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He begins his confession with this wonderful statement, this transparent statement. Daniel was fully aware that the years in Babylon were a divine discipline on Israel. He understood this. Knowing that confession, he also understood that knowing that confession was one requisite to restoration, he confessed the sin of his people, identifying himself with their sin as though he were personally responsible for it. You notice how he says, he doesn't say, your people have sinned and done wrong. He says, we have. All of us are guilty. All of us are over here in Babylon because we have turned aside. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments and rules. This is how he begins his confession, this blanket statement. We are all guilty. That's why we're here. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel confessed Israel's, including his own, unwillingness to listen to those whom God sent to warn them, namely the prophets. 
You ever wondered why God sent prophets to Israel? Here's the reason why. He sent them to Israel, to His people, to call them to repentance, to warn them about their idolatry, to to implore them, to beg them, to plead with them, to turn away from the false gods, false loves, and to turn back to the Lord. But the kings and the princes and their fathers and all the people of the land ignored the prophets. They scorned the prophets. They even killed the prophets. Some were sawn in too, maybe Isaiah. So God sends people, sends prophets to come into His his people's nation, His country, His land. He sends them in. He raises them up from among the people and anoints them and sends them in to speak and to challenge and to encourage and to, and to rebuke and to exhort his people saying, give it up and come back to me. Here's what you're doing wrong. Come back to me and you will be blessed. And how did they respond? Ignore, scorn, and even kill. In a similar way, uh, we walk around as Christians, we walk around as, as, as prophets in a way, and we proclaim the gospel, and, and, and people respond to us in the same manner, don't they? Oh, you're stupid, you're so dumb. You know, uh, this whole faith thing is the antithesis, antithesis of, of intelligence and free thought and, and blah, 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 and they scorn us and they shame us and they ridicule us, and, and if you live in the Sudan or or the Middle East, they kill you. You know, here they prevent you from being able to make a, a cake, you know, to continue with your bakery, or whatever it is. There, there's, the, there's persecution here. It's so minimal compared to what happens in other places. But as we go out and proclaim the gospel, we see this scorning and, and, and people ignoring and, and even the violence committed against us. Israel had turned completely. Verses 7 through 8, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because, why are they put to open shame? Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Daniel acknowledged that God is righteous and just in disciplining Israel for her unfaithfulness, for which she was covered with shame and dispersed into foreign countries. This Open shame applied to everyone, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those who are near and those who are far, and to their kings and to their princes and to their fathers, because everyone had committed treachery against God. The exile happened in three phases. It took three times for Nebuchadnezzar to get all of the people out there, and that represents the fact that all of them had turned away from the Lord and were guilty. All of them, all of Israel had committed this treachery against God. And this is why they were being disciplined and sent away. I like the uh, Hebrew word for treachery. Is, it's ma'al, ma'al. I had to work on that all week, ma'al. You have to get the ch in there, like you're clearing your throat, ma'al, right? If there was a Jewish person in here that spoke Hebrew, he would say, blasphemy, you're not saying it right. It's mahal. I love this word. It also translates as, and I think this is the stronger. Treachery is like, wow, I feel like I, I'm going to walk the plank in a pirate movie, right? Treachery just has that piratey kind of connotation. And I think the better word here is another one that's, you know, it works here with this mahal, and it's infidelity. 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 When a person goes outside of their marriage and joins with someone other than their spouse, they commit infidelity. Okay, we generally call it adultery, but it's infidelity. This is essentially what Israel did. Israel went outside of her 
covenant marriage with God and joined her heart, joined her life, her living, her being, her essence, all that she is, joined it to false gods, idols, and therefore committed infidelity. It's infidelity. There's a cheating going on here. This is the way that God views what His covenant people have done to Him. They have gone out and acted as a harlot, as an adulterer, and committed infidelity against Him, cheated on Him. Daniel is confessing this. I understand, Lord, our infidelity. I understand. I understand how we've turned from You and gone to someone else. Verses 9 through 11. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. It's kind of a repeat of what He's already been saying. All Israel has transgressed, that's disobeyed, sinned against your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against Him. God's discipline did not mean that He had withheld mercy and forgiveness from His people. But it meant that He, being righteous, must punish people's rebellion and disobedience. That's what Daniel's saying here. He realizes this. God had spoken to Israel through His law, think of the Ten Commandments, etc. But Israel chose not to walk in accordance with His law, in obedience to His law, and therefore disobeyed His voice. When Moses on the mountain chiseled out those commandments, it was God telling him what to write. And when he read those things before the Israelites, it was the voice of God, not the voice of Moses. And when I open the Bible and preach the Bible, you're hearing the voice of God. You're not hearing Phil. If you hear Phil, we're in big trouble. This is God's voice manifested and represented in His Word, which means it has authority. And the Israelites just blatantly cast off God's law, which is His voice. And for their rebellion, for this casting away, they received the curses that are written in the law of Moses. And if you want to go research them, go ahead. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. I mentioned one. You'll be subjugated to Gentile powers. There are consequences for our covenant-breaking disobediences, if that's even a word, our disobedience. The things that we do, there are consequences. When we rebel, we will receive the curses that are written in the Word of God. Even God's covenant people, because this storyline, this, this true biblical history does not have to do with some forgan, foreign... Forgan? That's a new word. Some foreign pagan group of people. These these are God's covenant people that the reference is to. He's addressing His people. Again, we think that, well, you know, I'm, I'm in covenant relationship with God, so I don't have anything to worry about with Him. I can just do whatever I want. Oh, my goodness, learn from His covenant people in the Old Testament, from the Israelites. No, you cannot just do whatever you want. And what we don't understand is that true freedom comes through obedience to God's law. We think that it's shackles and limitations. No, it's a safety net for us. When we obey Him, we do experience the abundant life that Christ offers to us. Oh, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to do these things and those things. I want to eat shellfish. Like that even applies. That was a context law. And I'm just telling you, the law is there for our joy. God is not interested in putting us under His thumb. The devil is. And if He can get us to disobey God's law, then He has us under His thumb. We think that He doesn't. We think that we are free. But we are not free. We are shackled to sin. Doing things God's way is always the best way. Always. Always. 
We may not understand that at times, but it is true. We, I mean, do you really want to receive the curses that are in God's word for disobedience? Uh, that's Old Testament, Brother Phil. He doesn't, he doesn't put those things on us today because of Jesus. It's so wonderful and okay. Just do what you want. Huge mistake. I have no idea what that voice represented. It was some weird guy from Alabama. It doesn't matter, Pastor Phil. Huh? Hey, don't tell me who it sounded like. It sounds like my cousin. Verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14. I mean, he's not done. He's still going. He's still confessing. 12 through 14, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. A great calamity. Part of the curse was, you disobey, great calamity. And then he says, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. That's a, is he using hyperbole here? So you mean to tell me that, 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 that nothing as severe as what happened to Jerusalem has ever happened before under heaven? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? What about these other places? Well, those weren't covenant groups, covenant people. I think this is by far the worst thing up to this point to happen to the Jews. I think that's what he means. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. And here, here it is. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that He has done, and we have not obeyed His voice. The discipline, calamity, or calamity Israel received confirmed God's warnings against her, which are written in His law and were spoken through the prophets. In spite of the severity of this Discipline that they experienced, including, or including great national disaster, right? Their entire headquarters was destroyed. They were brought out of there. Despite the severity of this calamity, the nation was not turning from her iniquities, her sins, and submitting to the authority of the law, God's truth. In other words, with all of this great calamity, God bringing it upon His people, they didn't care, and they didn't repent. You ever noticed in the Old Testament how they are referred to as a stiff-necked people? Boy, those Jews, they sure were stiff-necked, right? No, 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 we're all stiff-necked. We, we all have gone astray. Uh, none of us, naturally speaking, seek the glory of the Lord, seek to glorify Him. Like, like sheep, we have all gone astray. When we look at the Israelites, the Jews in the Old Testament, we shouldn't get fired up at them and their belligerence and foolishness. We should see ourselves in them and human, humankind altogether. They would not confess or repent of their iniquities and submit to the authority of the law, God's truth. This calamity, the fall of Jerusalem, which according to Daniel was the worst thing to happen to God's people to date, was because God is righteous and Israel had not obeyed Him. Again, these are covenant people. These are God's people. This is not a foreign group. Well, I can see how God would do that to those people over there because they're not His covenant people. These are His covenant people that this calamity He brings upon them. So there's the confession, multifaceted. It has to do with the whole nation and, and everyone, the kings and everyone. He's confessing how they've turned from God's law, disobeyed, committed treachery, infidelity, adultery. All of these things are all there in the confession. Now we get to see petition, verses 15 through 19. And we'll begin with 15 and 16. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned 
we have done wickedly. Another confession. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Daniel began his petition by mentioning two of the same things with which he began his prayer, God's greatness and the people's sin. Daniel spoke of God's delivering Israel out of Egypt by His great power with a mighty hand. And God was glorified through the deliverance of His people. But because the nation had sinned, she had become a byword. What is a byword? It would be an object of scorn, of ridicule. The surrounding nations saw this nation that was so blessed by God and they saw all this calamity befalling upon them. They became like a curse word. Obviously, their God's not with them. They're a bunch of fools. It became a byword, an object of scorn to those nations around her. In prayer that God, in keeping with His righteous acts, would turn away His anger and wrath from Jerusalem, Daniel was asking that God's discipline might be lifted and the people freed from their present bondage. That is what he's asking for here. I know that you're righteous. I know that you're angry. I know that you are wrathful against us. I know. I understand. But I beg and I plead with you to lift this according to your righteousness, according to what you've done with us, according to the fact that we are a byword, restore us in the land, restore your honor, glory, and name as we represent that. Lift your anger, lift your wrath from Jerusalem. That's what he's doing. He's pleading. Verses 17 through 19. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Oh, if we break down this wonderful closing section to his prayer, we you can see that he petitioned, that he asked the Lord to do nine things here. First, he, he implores the great and awesome God to listen to him. Listen to your servant. Listen to what I am saying. In asking the Lord to listen to him, he understands that the Lord is not obligated to do it. There is such a chasm of sin between God's people and God that God absolutely... It says in Scripture that God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. We know that these are His covenant people, that Daniel represents them, but does God really have to listen to him? We think that he does because we tend to believe that we're not so bad. If, if we could only for half a second see things the way that God does and the treachery, we ourselves would never listen to those sinners again, ever. We would dismiss them and cast them off into everlasting destruction. This cosmic treason is horrific that humanity, especially God's own covenant people, have committed against Him. Daniel does not believe that God is obligated to listen to him. And he pleads, please listen. Please. Second, make your face 
Shine upon your sanctuary. How might we translate this wonderful statement? Restore your glory to Jerusalem. The glory of God had left the city. It was lying in rubble. Read Nehemiah. The city was destroyed. It had no walls. It had nothing. It was the third strike by Nebuchadnezzar destroyed every square inch of that city. Absolute rubble. The glory of God had left the glorious city. Ichabod. Gone. And he's saying, make your face shine upon your holy hill once more. He's saying, restore the glory of your city. It is a light to the nations. It broadcasts not only your existence, but your grace, your power, and your glory. Restore all of that to your city. That way, your glory would shine forth from it. Making your face also has to do with putting your favor upon us. Restore your favor to us. Three, incline your ear and hear. This is paralleled with listen to your servant. Turn your ear to me, God, please. Please, I can imagine that your back is turned against your people, but, but could you turn and, and position your ear so you can hear my plea? Hear it, Lord. For open your eyes and see our desolations. Look upon our plight and our situation. Look upon our city, your city, your holy hill. Look upon it. Look at what, it, look at what it's become. I know it's because of us, but look at it. But look at it. Please, not only turn your ears to hear, but turn your eyes upon your holy mount and look at what it has become. We understand that it's our fault. But just see our desolations. Have you ever prayed in this way and asked God to see what is going on in your life, to hear, to listen to you? Oh, God, hear my prayer. This cancer, this desolation. Look upon what has happened to my family, Lord. It has become a desolation. Look upon our nation, America. We have murdered countless babies. We have completely redefined marriage. We have turned from you in every conceivable way. Look upon the desolations of our nation. Open your eyes and see. Please open your eyes and see. Number five, forgive. Forgive. Forgive our iniquities. Forgive our treachery, our infidelity, our Adultery, forgive our sins, our disobedience, our rejection of your law. Forgive, forgive us for selling our birthright. Forgive us for turning to idols and, and joining our hearts with false gods who can neither speak or see or hear. Forgive us our sins. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Forgive us our trespasses. That is what Daniel is asking for. Number six, pay attention. I don't think that he envisioned God being distracted and doing something other than being sovereign and hearing and seeing all things, but he, he's pleading with God to pay attention to what's going on here, to what's playing out and to what he's saying. Seven, he implores him to act. Take action. Take action. Make your face shine. Listen here. Make your face shine. Listen to me. Cast your eyes upon our desolations. Take action. And eight, delay not. Do not tarry. Don't be like us <laughs> where we just put things off and procrastinate. I know we're guilty of this. Delay not. Act now. Please. 
this is his petition. His adoration, it's his prayer, it's his adoration, it's confession, it's his confession, it's his, it's his petition. Closing. Did you notice something missing in Daniel's prayer? He never actually petitioned God for understanding in regards to Israel's desolations, namely the 70 years. <laughs> that was the purpose of his prayer. That was what he was looking for. And nowhere in his prayer do we see him beseech petition the great and awesome God for understanding in regards to those things. We don't see it. Instead, he petitioned God for mercy over and over and over. He understood something so powerful, something so profound. And, and his understanding of this particular thing is, is what shaped his entire life and, and shaped his prayers. He understood what Scripture clearly teaches, that God has promised to show mercy to His people if they will repent. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 2, and it's riddled throughout Old Testament and Scripture. He understood this, and it shaped his life and prayers. This is why he, rather than asking God for understanding concerning the 70 weeks, when will these things take place, and when will all these desolations end? Instead of asking what, uh, for the things that we thought he was going to ask for, this is why he confessed. He knew that God is a God of mercy. This is why he confessed the sins of the entire nation and beseeched God for mercy, because he understood that God is a God of mercy. Is it wrong for him to seek mercy from the Lord? No. Daniel understood something else. He understood that if God were to answer his prayer according to how he prayed, if he were to listen and make his face shine and incline his ear and hear and open his eyes and forgive, pay attention, act, delay, you know, act and not delay and all these things, if God were to act, he would do so based on His mercy and nothing else. Nothing else. This is why He said, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. He understood that they had none, that the, the, the tank of righteousness was depleted, it was completely empty, there wasn't a drop, there wasn't a sniff, not a, a residue, there was no righteousness. Treachery, treachery, treachery. He understood, I'm not coming to you in prayer because we're righteous. I'm coming to you and making our pleas because of your great mercy. Verse 18. Did you know that mercy is foundational to our salvation? So often we, when we think of our salvation, we focus on God's love and His grace, and, and rightly so. And His love, I would say, would be the first thing, and then mercy, and then grace. Mercy is a part of it. It's totally true. Read Ephesians 2.4. If you are a Christian... It's not because you made yourself one by praying some kind of a prayer or I just did all the right things. I received the Lord. Not because of you. It's because God loved you from before the foundation of the world and chose by grace to extend His mercy to you. His mercy comes to us through the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, makes us become born again, gives us a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And He grants to us the gifts of faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin, especially the sin of self-sufficiency, trying to earn our way. Maybe trying to find salvation in false gods and idols as 
Israel was attempting to do at this point. Do we understand how mercy plays a vital role in God's economy of things? Do we understand that God owes us nothing and that if He chooses to listen to us, if He chooses to act, it's because He is merciful? And people today walk around with a sense of entitlement thinking that God owes them something. I see this among certain groups of Christians walking around all haughty and prideful thinking that but man, look at me, I'm the, I'm the bee's knees and God is just, it, it, He just owes it to me. I'm just going to declare it all and take it all because He's there for me. I'm actually God and He serves me. People act this way today. It's incredible. I'll tell you what, what we need. We need to eliminate the sense of entitlement. And what we need is an ever-increasing sense of God's holiness. Knowledge of His holiness devastates pride. It destroys it. And it creates within us a sense of unworthiness and deep desire for mercy. Self-entitlement is perpetuated by a prideful spirit and attitude. An attitude of God owes. Do you know what God owes sinners? Hell. And by His infinite love, by His tremendous, incredible mercy, and by His wonderful grace, He has chosen to save some. It's incredible. I'm reminded of uh, the story Jesus told where two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee approached the altar of God very flagrantly and began to boast about his religious accomplishments and self-righteousness. He even began to ridicule the old tax collector. The tax collector, on the other hand, stood at a distance and beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, Lord. I am a sinner. Is that not what Daniel has been saying? It was the humble tax collector who was right in the Father's eyes not the self-righteous Pharisee. Martin Luther was a prolific writer. He authored numerous books and articles and just wrote all sorts of great stuff. I'm a big fan of his and I love most of his theology and I like to read his writings. I think it's good stuff. He wrote the 95 Thesis. How many of you have ever read that? That's that basically lengthy note that he pinned to that church door in Germany. In that 95 thesis, it really sparked the Reformation and, and literally changed the world. Changed the world. When he was uh, on his deathbed, he had a, a little note, a little handwritten note in his pocket. He lay there on his bed dying. He was very, very sick. He had this little note rolled up and in his pocket. It was the very last thing he had written before he died. And he quite literally considered what was written on that note to be the apex of his theological work. The grandest thing that he could maybe get his mind around and write about. And this is just... Incredible if you've ever read some of the things that he's written. The bondage of the will and these various writings that are just like way above my pay grade. And I just think it's fascinating that, that this, he's on his deathbed and this little note with this simple little kind of proverbial statement was the apex, the pinnacle, the highest point. He considered it that. And it was the last thing that he wrote. Do you know what he wrote on that little piece of paper? We are all beggars. This is true. Luther understood his need of God's mercy. Daniel understood his need of God's mercy. The tax collector in Jesus' story understood his need of God's mercy. Do we understand our need of God's mercy? 
It is totally true that if we are Christians, we are recipients of it. But do we understand that we still need it? Do we understand that we should still seek it? Do we understand that, that His mercy should be a guiding principle in our lives and direct our lives in so many ways, especially in our prayers? That when we come before the throne of grace, that we don't come in a way that is irreverent or demanding? It says we can approach it boldly, but boldly doesn't translate as frivolous or loose or just do whatever you want. For crying out loud, if we can approach the throne of grace, it's only by His mercy that we can. Do we understand His mercy? Are we growing in this area? I'm telling you, if you, if you grow in this area, I believe it'll change our lives. That we won't walk around in such religious pride and comparisons and that our prayer lives will be shaped. We'll have the adoration, confession, and and petition and these sorts of components. I think it'll just direct our lives if we're growing in this knowledge of mercy. If we understand that it's part of God's default mode. I hope that we're developing and growing in this area. Because I believe, I believe it is far better to be a beggar before God than a bragger. The beggar receives mercy, but the bragger receives maledictions, curses. Amen.